Join us as we explore not only the profiles and origins of scotches, bourbons, Tennessee whiskeys, and more, but also as we plumb the depths of the human experience. The best conversations are had with a glass of our favorite spirit. Welcome to the Kogan Conversation. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kogan Conversation. I'm your host, Alan Kogan. And in this episode, I'll be debunking some of the myths and misconceptions surrounding whiskey, as well as defining certain terms and buzzwords that are often found on the bottle. Understanding what is what can help you confidently purchase a bottle to enjoy. The reality is that the whiskey industry is a business that sells product. In order to sell the product, they have to market to a wide audience, including those who know virtually nothing about the finer things of whiskey. This results in fancy packaging with fancy words that enhance the shelf appeal and entices the common shopper to purchase, thinking they nab something super special. For example, I'm sure you've seen a bottle of whiskey that says, handcrafted. So much of whiskey production nowadays has become automated that in slapping the term handcrafted on the bottle doesn't have any requirements, but it sounds great. It sounds fancy. It sounds like it's been made with love. Another term thrown around is reserve. The implication is that the bottle came from a very select group or reserve batch and therefore super rare and delicious. I can almost guarantee that 90% of the bottles out there claiming to be reserve are not from reserve stock. Same goes for anything claiming to be from an old reserve or special reserve or fill in the blank reserve. It's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo and has no bearing on what's in the bottle. There are also terms like small batch that definitely means something, but the meaning is relative to how it's being used. Small batch just means the whiskey is produced in a smaller number of barrels than usual. Usually this is an experimental run or a smaller amount to age for a longer period of time, but small to one distillery could be large to another. This is where small batch generally means nothing unless you know the context of the distillery. Another big one that's overused is distiller's edition or limited edition or some variation of the two distiller's edition implies that the distiller was more involved than normal in the creation and when in reality there's no real definition of what that means i've always understood it to mean that the dis the master distiller is hand selecting barrels with unique flavor profiles or unique cask finishes to sell as a special limited run most of the time whiskey makers aren't planning for special releases when they fill a barrel that barrel will be sampled throughout the years and its selection for a special release is at the discretion of the master distiller when the time comes. Terms like double malt, double, triple, or even quadruple implies that you're getting more of something or that there's been more of, of a thorough process involved. Using the word wood is quite common, as with Balvini's double wood or triple cask and Lafroig's triple and quadruple woods, but Balvini and Lafroig mean different things by these terms. For Lafroig, it's the number of barrels the whiskey has been through successively, one after the other. For Balvini, it's the types of casks used for separate barrels of spirit, which are then vatted together. As you can see, many of these terms and adjectives prey on the average consumer walking into a liquor store and being pulled towards the fancy looking bottle with a fancy word salad with no standard of meaning. Yes, in some cases, some of these terms are warranted, but it's all relative to the distiller 
and therefore a lot of these terms are just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Now, that all being said, there are terms that mean the same thing across all whiskey with understood definitions and implications. For example, a whiskey claiming to be non-chill filtered. This means that the spirit hasn't been excessively filtered to remove any of the natural oils or flavor chemicals that may cause haze in the glass. Chill filtering makes the whiskey much more translucent, and many believe it drastically affects the flavor or purity of the whiskey. Artificial coloring is used to darken or control the color of the whiskey, especially for consistency from batch to batch. Many scotches and Irish whiskies add E150A food coloring, commonly known as spirit caramel, to manage their spirit's look, but oftentimes the higher-end offerings are strictly left to the color obtained from the wood of a barrel. Now, just because a whiskey is dark in color doesn't mean color has been added. In fact, bourbon is the best example with its rich, deep, leathery color. By law, color cannot be added to bourbon. If it is, it is no longer legally allowed to be called bourbon. That all being said, most whiskeys and areas where whiskey is being distilled are required by law to denote on their bottle whether or not they have color added. Another term you might find is single malt, which is often found on scotch bottles. It means the spirit is from one singular distillery. The distillery is still allowed to blend different casks to make different flavor profiles, but all the spirit must be produced by one distillery in order to claim single malt. Not to be confused with single barrel, which means all of the bottles of a specific offering came from just one barrel or cask. This obviously means there are less bottles available and usually includes previously discussed marketing terms like rare or limited edition. A big one here in the States, especially with bourbon, is bottled and bond. If you ever see bottled and bond on a bottle, know that you are looking at the result of the first consumer protection law in U.S. history. In the whiskey business, to be bonded with the government was used to assure the purchaser that they were buying the real deal. Prior to Prohibition, counterfeit whiskey flooded the unregulated market, at best swindling people and at worst killing them. Unscrupulous people trying to make a buck would add coloring and flavoring to moonshine or worse, gasoline, turpentine, etc. And then they'd sell it as whiskey. In an effort to protect both consumers and legitimate distillers, the federal government passed the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. To be given the literal green stamp of approval, barrel-aged spirits had to follow the following seven rules. Number one, the whiskey must be a product of one distillation season. Number two, distillation must occur at a single distillery. Number three, it must be aged for a minimum of four years. Number four, they have to be bottled at 100 proof or 50% ABV if domestic. Number five, the label must identify the distiller who made it. Number six, the label must identify the bottling loca location if different than the distillery. And number seven, only water can be added to manipulate the proofing to meet the requirements. And jumping off the point about that proof requirement, uh, let's talk about cast strength and barrel proof. So cast strength or barrel proof, which is interchangeable, 
Uh, it's a term that signifies the whiskey hasn't been cut with any water after coming out of the barrel. It's bottled at the natural, sta uh, natural strength and is usually in the range of 55 to 60% ABV. That's alcohol by volume. Cast strength offerings are often some of my favorite whiskeys, quite honestly. I, I, I think there's more flavor involved with that, especially add a couple of drops of water that breaks up that alcohol and the sugars. It really just opens up and flowers that whiskey. Another set of terms I want to discuss and pun fully intended distill is uh, pot still versus column still. Many whiskeys use the term pot still as a way to attract attention as it being something different. If you've ever seen some uh, pictures of a, a hillbilly making moonshine in the woods, they were most likely using some sort of makeshift pot still. Pot stills are wide base stills traditionally made from copper that are heated directly during the distillation process. Distillates are produced one batch at a time and a, a pot still better allows al for alterations to texture and taste. Because of this, spirits produced on a pot still tend to be more raw and less stripped of flavor than those produced in a column still. In fact, Irish and Scotch whiskeys are required by law to use pot stills. On the other hand, column stills are more commonly used by big American brands to make bourbon and rye. Instead of direct heat, these stills use steam injection or jackets. A column still works almost like a series of pot stills, except pot stills are stacked on top of one another in one big vertical column. On top of the boiler, which houses the mash, is the analyzer column, in which the steam enters and begins its ascent. After the alcohol boils off into vapors, it travels up into the analyzer column and up into the rectifier column, where it cools and begins condensing. These spirits require less aging and are more pure and are less prone to volatile compounds. I know that's kind of in the weeds, but uh, there's a very big distinction when you look at a bottle and it says pot stilled or column stilled. Generally speaking, column still will not be uh, on a bottle. It's usually pot still whiskeys that use the term pot still, especially in American markets, to market their whiskey as something different or unique. One of the requirements for bourbon to be bourbon is the charring of the inside of American oak barrels. This process is essentially a 60 second flash burn to blacken the barrel staves, bringing out the wood sugars and adding the distinct caramel flavor. Now if you've ever seen a bottle claim to be a toasted barrel whiskey, it is simply an elongated version of the charring process. Rather than a quick flash burn, it's a slow toasting of the inside of the barrel. Now does this add more depth to the whiskey or is it just another marketing grab? I'll leave that to your taste buds, but I'll, I will say that I've had toasted barrel or finished in a toasted barrel whiskey that has surprised me and others that haven't been anything special. You can be sure, though, that anything quote-unquote toasted is a more exclusive and expensive bottle of whiskey. You'll also come across a term called sour mash. This term refers to how the bourbon is made, not how it tastes. And as the saying goes, all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. The same can be true for sour mash. All sour mash is bourbon, but not all bourbon is sour mash. The term mash isn't referring to the physical mixing of the ingredients, but a grouping of ingredients that are used to create the next batch.
Tennessee and Kentucky are where they create most bourbons using the sour mash method, but only a few distilleries include the terminology in their marketing. Any baker will tell you the best way to make a sourdough bread is to use what's referred to as a starter. In sourdough, the starter is fermented dough that naturally contains wild yeast and bacteria, which are the bacteria that make the bread rise. Sour mash bourbon, much like sourdough bread, uses leftovers from previous batches. The sour mash or fermented ingredients gives the bourbon a sweeter and more robust flavor. Sour mash refers to the grouping of grains used in the fermentation process. Typically, distilleries will use a 1 to 3 or 1 to 4 ratio with their sour mash. This means that for every sour mash bourbon batch, one third or one quarter of the mash is made up of an old batch and the rest is new. There is some debate about when the sour mash method was created. Most of credit Dr. James C. Crow with the formal creation of sour mash bourbon in the mid-1800s. Dr. Crow was a trained chemist and physician in Scotland before moving to the United States in 1820. He worked for several distilleries before Oscar Pepper hired him at the Oscar Pepper Distillery. One issue Crow and many other distilleries were facing at the time was maintaining consistency of flavors across all batches. By introducing this method, Dr. Crow was able to ensure that every batch produced by the distillery had the same great taste. What I just went through is not an exhaustive list. In fact, new marketing ploys and adjectives are popping up all the time in the whiskey industry. The point isn't to deter you from buying a bottle that says limited or special reserve, but to inform you that sometimes it's just a bunch of nonsense. The whiskey might be phenomenal, but don't fall victim to the shelf appeal, especially when similar or even better options are available for a much lower price point. Which brings me to my next topic, pricing and quality. The whiskey industry is notorious for preying on the assumption that the older the age statement on the bottle, the better and more expensive it should be. Of course, aging a spirit in a barrel for years on end is an investment, so the older it is, the more return they want. It makes sense, but does that mean it is therefore better? Not always. First, there's some major context to flesh out across the whiskey categories when it comes to aging. Scotland, Japan, Ireland, etc. have very different climates than, than the United States, and therefore have older age statements than American whiskeys. For example, it's fairly rare to find a standard scotch under 10 years old unless it's a deliberate expression. Scotland has a consistent temperate maritime climate with heavy influence from the sea. Unlike the American climate, there isn't much variance in temperature from season to season, and therefore the influence of the barrel is lesser. In the U.S., with bourbon being the best example, winter in Kentucky can be in the 30s, and summer can be in the 90s with a high humidity. These extreme swings in temperature contract and expand the barrel, pushing more spirit through the wood in a shorter period of time. American spirits are therefore rarely aged older than four to six years, as the longer you age in a fluctuating climate, the more barrel flavor you get, which isn't always desired. Age of the whiskey doesn't always equate to quality, but in many instances it does. It's all relative. It depends on what you enjoy. It's generally accepted that more age on a spirit makes it more flavorful and full-bodied. And that's not to discount younger spirits with unique profiles. The truth is that age statements aren't nearly as simple as they seem. 
and that most whiskey drinkers might not fully understand what that number means, and that worrying too much about the numbers makes you more likely to miss some incredible bottles. Age statements can also be reductive. Many of the bottles labeled 12 years old could contain a blend of whiskeys aged from 12 to sometimes 15 to 16 years or more, depending on the brand. This is of course with the exception of single barrel or single cask whiskeys, but some bottles are the product of a master distiller or master blender using a variety of whiskeys to achieve the desired final result. Master blenders might use older stock to add nuance to a younger whiskey in order to replicate the profile of a whiskey from batch to batch. But the whole process is sort of like trying to mix a new can of custom paint. You may have to use different ingredients a second time. Making a 12-year-old whiskey is not so easy as just taking a few pallets of 12-year-old whiskey and dumping it into a tank. Barrels mature differently, and no two are the same. There's a second element to this seemingly tedious process as well, the search for exceptional casks. While some whiskeys are hitting their peak around 12 years of age, others might still have room to grow to get to 18, 21, or even 30 years of age. Some whiskeys can hit staggering ages. 70 plus is not unheard of in Scotland, and in Kentucky you'll occasionally hear of bourbons over 25 years old. A lot of people wonder why every barrel isn't just aged to say 23 years of age. It would certainly make Pappy Van Winkle fans much happier. There are a few reasons experts will point out if you ask. Number one, 23 years of waiting is 23 years of paying taxes with no profit. Most shareholders and all accountants would consider this a nightmare. You, the consumer, would have to pick up some of that cost by paying more for those bottles to balance out the cost to produce. But more importantly, some of the whiskeys just don't make it to 23. And in fact, most don't. An additional note on aging, whiskey doesn't age in the bottle. In fact, it's quite inert. Assuming it's properly stored, whiskey won't change much itself in the bottle. What change it does see has to do with oxygen exposure, lead exposure, and temperature fluctuations. Once your bottle's opened and oxygen gets in, it tends to begin a timer of about two-ish years before the oxidation turns the whiskey into something less delicious. Just make sure to store it in a cool, dry, light-restrictive place to ensure the longevity of both opened and unopened bottles. Now, the pricing of whiskey is a fickle thing. All the terms and marketing tactics I've gone over are used to upsell largely mass-produced liquor well above MSRP. In fact, the secondary market for whiskey is quite insane right now. You can buy a limited edition bottle of Ardbeg Scotch for about 150 bucks upon its release and sell it for upwards of $600 online or to a collector. I know because I'm a massive Ardbeg fan and every year they release a committee release that has a new thing, a new box, a new graphic on the bottle and I buy it because I want it and uh, I see them going online for upwards of $600, $700, depending on how well it's liked. Liquor sale laws in the United States make it tedious for private sale, but it happens. The biggest culprit to the rise of uh, whiskey prices is our good friend social media and a revamped interest from a younger generation. Whiskey drinking has become more and more a social status flex. The status symbol has always been there, always been the case. You see, you know, people drinking fine whiskey, fine scotch, the, you know, the McCallan 18 in the movies, or smoking a cigar at a jazz lounge, etc. 
but now much like craft brewing, whiskey has permeated to a younger generation eager to enjoy the finer things as a show of maturity. Podcast host Joe Rogan single-handedly raised the price of Buffalo Trace in the past couple years. Their benchmark bourbon, just called Buffalo Trace, uh, it's, it's a spirit that sells at MSRP for about $35 and can be found in stores for upwards of 60 right now. He routinely talks about it and sips it on his show and even has a sponsorship to receive cases and cases of their bourbon, so long as he keeps talking about it. Now, as the most viewed and listened to show and podcast on the planet, I understand that. A deal I would die for. <laughs> Send me cases of whiskey. I will drink it while I talk on my podcast. It's phenomenal. Maybe one day. But Rogan's demographic of listeners has flooded liquor stores for an otherwise basic bourbon. Not that it's bad, but it's not worth $60. People even wait in line to get products like Buffalo Trace, Eagle Rare, and Blanton's because of the allure surrounding them and their connection to the coveted Pampy Van Winkle name. These bourbons aren't bad by any means, but there's a falsely placed grandeur on them because of their notoriety. The point is, be vigilant on what and why you're buying. As far as what's a good entry whiskey or how much should you spend on a bottle, it really depends on what you enjoy and what you want to try. I hesitate to give an answer as it really is relative to the person and I'm a huge fan of sampling part of buying. Hopefully with conversations we have here on this podcast, I can enlighten guests on new flavor profiles and their input can assist listeners in searching and purchasing, purchasing whiskey. I will say the following, bourbon and American whiskey are generally cheaper due to their corn makeup. Cheaper ingredients and easier distribution domestically makes for a fairly cheap access. Don't turn your nose up to a bottle that appears to look quote-unquote cheap. Some of my favorite bourbon is Old Grandad, and I usually can find it at any liquor store for about 20 bucks. Additionally, if you're a first-time buyer and you want to go confidently into a store and buy a whiskey that isn't low-end but don't want to break the bank, do some additional research and don't be afraid to splurge to try something new. Set an affordable price limit like $50 to $60 on a bottle that you want to try to enjoy. That's going to wrap things up for this episode, but I sincerely hope there are pieces of information you can add to your mental tool belt for the next time you're walking aimlessly down the liquor aisle. When it comes down to it, the words on the bottle, the age statement, and the price have no bearing on whether or not you enjoy it. It is completely okay for you to enjoy a $40 bottle of 12-year-old scotch and not the $400 bottle of Macallan 18. A good whiskey is a whiskey that you enjoy, and in my experience, the people you enjoy it with really make the dram better. Thanks for listening, and as always, please follow us on social media and share our podcast for others to enjoy. Make sure to tune in on July 8th for our first true-to-format episode where my longtime friend and podcast producer Grant Brown joins me to enjoy samples of Balvini Scotch. Grant is a filmmaker and producer based out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with lots of credits to his name, including a recently released feature-length film. 
As we get to know the whiskey, we'll also get to know him and his background. This upcoming episode will set the tone for what this podcast will be. It's going to get better at with, just like most whiskeys, it'll get better with age. As we continue to go and get guests and introduce them to different whiskeys, try different samplings, and get to know the guests themselves in interesting ways. I hope you enjoy this, and I can't wait to share the future of this podcast with you. As stated before, this first two episodes were just an intro to what whiskeys are, what words are, and definitions, etc. To introduce everyone to what we're talking about. I appreciate you sticking around giving us a chance and i hope to see you soon take care everyone cheers <laughs>